Welcome to the Everyone's a Mo- Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. My co-host Bob Zerl. With me, as always, is professional film critic Sean Patrick. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone's a Critic Podcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is Critics Pod. Listen to us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa, all your podcatchers. If you rate and review the show, give us a five-star review. We will read it on the air. Uh, and if you do that, if you head over to our social media pages, you'll get information on a giveaway that we're doing. Sean, you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I forgot to get that up last week, actually. <laughs> but I'll right. get it taken care of this week. We got two new movies that we're giving away. Excellent. Uh, Patreon.com slash CriticsPod is the best way to help support the podcast. And if you want some of our podcast merch, head over to IHateCritics.net and click on our Public link in the upper right-hand corner. Or just go to T Public and search Critics Pod or Everyone's Critic Podcast or Willem Dafoe. All right. Uh, let's share the screen for our YouTube people. Oh, yeah, we are live on YouTube whenever we decide to record. I put a link out to Facebook and Twitter when we go live. So uh, if you want to listen to us live, click on the little bell to get notified when we go live or check our social media. You can also watch the podcast on uh youtube anytime you'd like uh either the video version or the audio they're both there so anyway let's just jump right into it uh gi joe is back spinoff snake eyes is it any good it's the best movie of the week are you kidding me no it's not it's terrible it's unwatchable uh snake eyes stars henry golding as the titular character snake eyes who doesn't have a name He's just called Snake Eyes. <laughs> Everybody calls him Snake. You would have thought that maybe this was a code name. It's not. <laughs> it's his name. Anyway, Snake Eyes, uh, as a kid, he watched his dad get killed. He felt guilty for not try- not being able to stop his dad from being killed. He grows up to uh, punish himself for that by being an MMA fighter who gets his ass kicked regularly because he needs to take the pain. He, he deserves the pain, and then, <laughs> but then he comes back and wins because you know he's the hero. Uh, he gets cr- recruited by a guy named Kenta, who is a uh, friend for the Yakuza and sh- moving guns for Cobra. And Snake Eyes goes to work for him, but when he asks Snake Eyes to kill a guy, Snake Eyes refuses. And uh, find that we come to find out that this guy is the head of a secret ninja organization who takes Snake Eyes under his wing and takes him to Japan and teaches him to be a ninja uh, by going through the three trials. And <laughs> this movie is just so bad in so many ways. Where do you begin? Robert Schwenke is a terrible director. He doesn't know how to direct an action movie. Why he keeps getting assignments to direct action movies baffles me because he hasn't made it. I mean, Red was okay, but it's mostly based off of how good Bruce Willis was the last time he cared about anything. <laughs> I mean, beyond that, the sequel sucked. He didn't direct the sequel. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's the one good thing Robert Twinkie's ever done ever since then. Like, literally, he, he like, they gave him the Divergent series, and it was so bad that nobody, I'm not even sure they released the last one is how bad that, that was in terms of his box office performance, just as bad as a movie. Uh, he's just a terrible director, and here you have a movie that's purportedly about ninjas, about guys who you know fight for for you know they're, they're the highlight of what they do is fighting. So the fight scenes should be amazing, and they're not. They're impossible to watch. You can't tell what anything what's happening. He's trying to do this kinetic camera work thing where 
you know, you're, he puts the camera in the action, but all it does is move the camera so much that you can't see the insanely cool things that these people are supposed to be doing. So you really don't know that it's actually insanely cool or not. Uh, whether he had to do this to hide some deficiency in the way Henry Golding fights, I don't know, because I don't know if Henry Golding can fight now. <laughs> it's too, all the editing and the moving of the camera, you can't see anything. <sighs> and but my biggest problem, like of all the problems, like there's so many problems with this movie. It's so bad, but like there's this device that's that's chucked into the middle of the movie that uh, the ninjas are protecting this all encompassing weapon of doom. That's like this heart shaped rock that glows. And if you point it at your your enemy, he'll just just burst into ash. Uh, and once the bad guy gets his hands on it, he's like, well, movie over. <laughs> All he has to do is point it at people, movie's over. But he doesn't. So the movie doesn't even bother. The movie is so lazy and so poorly made. They don't even come up for a good reason why he doesn't just point the rock at Snake Eyes and end the movie. <laughs> like, it just He has to decide, you know what, minions, you go ahead. I'm just going to hang back here with my rock of doom and not do anything. <laughs> so freaking lazy it's the laziest goddamn thing i mean and it's so easy to fix i mean you could just put in a thing where anytime you use the rock it takes a little bit of your life force or you know, one line of dialogue i just fixed the movie <laughs> like one line of, at least i fixed that part of the movie because the other yeah. parts are still shitty but <laughs> or like you know the rock has to recharge after you use it to blow something up or blow up your enemy okay just one line of dialogue can explain that and you don't have this giant hole in the middle of your movie but where people are going why didn't he just use the stupid rock and blow everybody up <laughs> so bad that's a shame it seemed like they were treating this like the transformer series treated bumblebee like this was going to be the one that saves the franchise you can start <laughs> over here yeah and Clearly, that's not what happened, unfortunately. Now, I don't remember G.I. Joe. I mean, obviously, I was a kid, but I didn't really watch it. Was Snake Eyes a bad guy or a good guy? Uh, he started off bad and became a good guy. Oh. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the story they tell here, and I think that was kind of the story of the cartoon. My memory of G.I. Joe is weird because I didn't. I watched the cartoon a little bit. But when I had G.I. Joe figures, like I, I had hundreds of G.I. Joe figures, but instead of using them to fight wars, I had them wrestle because yeah. they were better than the wrestling action figures that I had. So I, was, <laughs> I was a He-Man guy through and through, and well, that came out this weekend, too. So yeah. <laughs> my, I was more interested in showing my son that than this. Was it good? I didn't watch it. <laughs> I said I was more interested. I haven't done it yet. Uh, I've heard people complaining because apparently it. I watched like five seconds of it and it looked like the old He-Man. So I'm kind of excited about it when I have time. Right. This is a pretty busy week for movies, so that'll part of why I didn't yeah. watch it. But I guess people are complaining that it kind of centers around Tila. Uh, yeah, apparently Kevin Smith decided to kill He-Man in the first episode. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, but I guess if you I remember the original cartoon, she was the only one who didn't, not the only one, but like the main character that didn't know, you know, she was, always, so that's kind of, that's a major part of the story and yep. that drives people nuts and they're probably shout, you know, yelling awoke and blah, blah, blah. I don't, 
don't really care. I'm going to enjoy Stop it. Stop ruining my childhood. Oh, my God. Your childhood is the same as it ever was. And if they go back and watch <sighs> it, um, they'd be they'd probably be shocked at how much she played a major role in the series <laughs> just because it's called He-Man. But regardless, we're not here to talk about He-Man because yeah. nobody watched it. We're here to talk about <laughs> old people. <laughs> old, directed by uh, M. Night Shyamalan and uh, starring uh, Vicky Creeps and uh, Gal Garcia Bernal as a married couple who uh, went a trip to this uh, island paradise resort. Uh, they didn't even enter a contest, but they won it. Uh, and they decided to take him up on that and go to this place. And they, uh, they're given all these amenities and it's beautiful. And then when, after their first day, they're approached by the owner of the resort who offers them the chance to go to a private beach where, you know, there'd be a lot less people and it's really beautiful and really special. And so they take them up on that, them and their two kids, a six year old and 11 year old, uh, go to this uh, beach. There are several other uh, people who are also you know the most special people at the resort who've been given this access to this beach and um, once they're there uh, they come across a dead body and they try to leave and they end up you know, being unable to leave there's some sort of force that's holding them on the beach and slowly but surely begins to emerge to them that they're aging at a pretty rapid rate so first the kids uh, begin to grow up very very quickly and then they realize Hey, we're getting older also. And um, I'm going to have to spoil it to talk about it. I hope that's all right. with Is that all right with you? You've seen it. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I guess before you get there, it, it's. I don't know. It, it's it's competent enough, but it's kind of boring. And in the end, it's just like it's a movie. <laughs> that's the best thing I can say about it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the twist is it doesn't explain what's happening and it's just it just kind of it just takes another direction and quite frankly they started with that from the get-go maybe it's a more interesting movie there's mo- maybe there's more of a you know a moral questioning going on but instead he had to play it as a twist and I don't I don't even know if it makes it more interesting but it, right but it's such a big deal that it would have played better if you knew the whole time. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's too interested in the twist, and it's not nothing wrong. I, I don't really have anything wrong with it, other than it's you know you, you pointed out something that I'm sure you'll get to, but it's just a movie. But from yeah, here on out, go ahead and spoil it. All right. So you've been warned. Um, <laughs> so basically, what he's done here and i guess i thought this was obvious to everybody but i'm reading a bunch of reviews today going why doesn't anybody else see this because it seems very obvious to me (laughs) this is a movie about movies it's not even about uh an old age beach that's just the gimmick that's the horror movie obvious gimmick uh what shyamalan is doing here is making a movie about movies he's making a movie about the hollywood industry and the way it uh chews up and spits people out uh, once they're no longer useful, once they've aged out of usefulness. Um, So this becomes clear once you see that Shyamalan himself is playing the person who is behind the camera at the top of the rocks off the beach. He's filming everything that's taking place on the beach, and it's being reported back to this uh, supposed pharmaceutical company that uh, has secretly given all these people 
there's secretly there are several of these people who have maladies. They're deathly maladies, and they've come up with uh, various uh, ways of trying to cure those maladies. But to figure out if the cure works, they need to expedite the aging process. And they've found this beach that does that. Uh, and so uh, to, to send essentially these people, one of them has cancer and uh, they're able to essentially, if they can cure her cancer, then she'll, instead of dying of cancer, she'll die of old age. And that'll tell them whether or not their, their drug worked. Uh, the same goes for this other woman who has seizures and another woman who has a calcium deficiency. They're given them drugs that they didn't know they were taking in order to, you know, set that up. Then there's this uh, shady pharmaceutical company that is, uh, you know, putting these people, essentially killing these people to test their drugs. And the overall metaphor is the pharmaceutical company is the movie industry. He's the mercenary director for hire who is directing something that he didn't create that is not his own. And that's why he directs it with this very intentional artifice. So you have all of these characters, all these performances that are incredibly over the top, that are incredibly broad. Every moment somebody talks, somebody says something that takes you out of the moment and knocks you out of the movie. It's so it breaks the fourth wall very intentionally by just how bad these line readings are, because these are good actors. These are trained actors. They've been doing some of them have been doing this for a while. Alex Wolf is one of the best actors working today, <laughs> but he makes him but he makes him emote in such a fashion in this movie that is completely over the top and unbelievable. And he does that with the purpose of exposing the artifice of this being a movie, because, again, this is not a movie about what it's about. He's used a gimmick. This is the, the 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 premise is a marketing campaign. He is the mercenary director for hire. Uh, he is the the pharmaceutical company is the Hollywood studio system, and the people on the beach are the people in Hollywood who get chewed up and spit out in this ever you know growing system of of yes, we're maybe we think we're making art, maybe, but we're using the idea that we're creating art in order to cover up the fact that we're really mercenaries just trying to make money. And, and so I thought that metaphor was pretty obvious. Uh, apparently, I'm the only one that's reading that, but it's a full meta narrative that's taking place here. Because I don't think Shyamalan is a bad director. I think he's a, he's quite talented when he want when he's trying when he's invested in something. He's quite talented. Uh, so when he directs actors to act this poorly in a movie, I have to believe that he's doing it intentionally. I think he did it intentionally with the happening, and it just oh, didn't I set. Disagree. I think I think he did. I, I think, think he, Mark Wahlberg was making another movie and Shyamalan <laughs> wasn't smart enough to realize that. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg was making the right movie and he was not right. putting it in the movie properly. Or This movie, I think he, I think he's doing this intentionally in this movie. I think he directs them particularly this way. He also uses his camera in a very showy way that reveals the sort of directorial flourish that he's done that he's using here the way his camera moves the way he the things he chooses to film and not film he's exposing the artifice of the movie but he's doing this in a way that is incredibly obnoxious and just continuously underlining the point underlining the point of how artificial this all is and um and how he he seems to hate directing this movie (laughs) Which I find, I I just, I he's like he's trying to be on our side. He's trying to he's trying to tell us that hey, I'm with you. I know that movies like this suck, and I know that I'm working for this mercenary corporation that's just trying to take your money. And we're using these people, and Hollywood uses these people all the time to just until they too until they get old, and then they're not useful anymore. 
that's that's the story of many actors is that they get used until they're old and they're not useful anymore and our society has sped up the aging process via social media and criticism and so on to <laughs> and thus that's the metaphor that he latched onto here and you can find that also in this character which is one of the dumbest characters ever created <laughs> a character who is said to be a famous rapper who is called in the movie mid-sized sedan that's his name <laughs> now whether that's a failed joke or or like <laughs> or it's intentional it's it's debatable either he's like either he's walking into the room with this character going hello fellow young people <laughs> like i understand your culture <laughs> or he's pointing out the how artificial it is and maybe this was in the script that he was given and he's like that's really stupid i'm gonna highlight that <laughs> And maybe, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I, I think that I think honestly that's the movie he made. Yeah, and going back to the happening, I mean, maybe he, maybe you're right. It just because he did when he did interviews, he kept calling it a B movie, but he did make a B movie. Mark Wahlberg made the B movie. He made such <laughs> a like everything else looked professional and real, and same thing here. Uh, I don't know that his ego allows him to make a B movie, and. I mean, that's again, that's why I think there's such a, a heavy meta narrative is that he's not capable of making a real B movie. Like he doesn't have the the boldness to 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 give us like there are moments here of of real, you know, like this. This poster is far more bold than anything that's actually in the movie in terms of body horror. Right. This, oh, this yeah. poster is way more bold than the actual movie, which is actually PG-13. And there is uh, there is room for a lot of body horror and they drop and, the ball on that big time. Absolutely. Absolutely they do. There's one scene basically of of real genuine body horror. Um well, they could have done something with that pregnancy that would have been fucked up. Oh yeah. I was I was watching a YouTube critic talk about it and she she pointed out that uh, <laughs> that she wants to see Ari Aster's version of this. You know, she wants to see Ari Aster's Sandcastles, which is the movie that, the the name of the book that this is based on. And which has a much more fucked up version of this story. They're already on the island. Uh, the it's just much darker and and different than this. Well, and I think part of the problem, if that metaphor is what he was doing, is, I mean, they were already washed up and chewed out when they got to the island to begin with. So even by the time they were old, that you know, he's already kind of lost on that. They were they were young when they were disposable. I, I don't know. It was it was just sloppy and not uh, sloppy in certain storytelling ways, especially if you're going for that metaphor. But but then just too competent in other ways and too safe in another way. The best thing I can say about it is it's a movie. Uh it's kind of boring. Uh there's no I think he, I think he thinks he's this He's this high-minded artist who's you know kind of above it all and, and commenting on everything, and, and and I think that he just doesn't have the actual talent to be that. Uh, he doesn't have not the talent. I don't want to say he's because he's he's definitely talented. I I just think he he thinks a little bit more of himself that he's able to deliver. Right, and he's not. I don't think he's flexible enough with the style. To, I mean, he's kind. He's almost made himself a one-note director, unfortunately, and this re, he, this would require a little bit 
more variety out of him, and it, he doesn't have it here, and it ends up just at best being stale. But he's also blaming the studio for all of his problems. I mean, that's what the, that's what the studio is just about. You know, their corporations just trying to make money, and they're chewing us all up and spitting us all out. And I'm on your side, guys. Hollywood's terrible. But he spends <laughs> so little. I mean, that's part of why that needs to almost be part of the main story from the get go, because he's in order to really develop that idea. He they before you know it, they're all arrested. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's just. It's too big of an idea to do it as a twist at the end and then just end the movie. Yeah. And even then, I don't know if it's good, but it's got to be better than what this ended up being. All right. We've talked about it enough. (laughs) How it ends. How it ends. A much more better end of the world movie. (laughs) Not that that's an end of the world movie, but it kind of is in a way. For certain people. Uh, how it ends uh, stars uh, stars and was uh, written and di- co-directed by Zoe Lister Jones, who plays a character who uh, can see her younger self. Uh, she has conversations with her. They they live together. They interact. And generally speaking, people can't see this younger version of herself, but she can. And the younger version of herself is played by uh, Kaylee Spaney. And it's just this wonderful device that they don't explain, but they don't need to. It's because again, that's, it's not what's important about this. Uh, why the, why isn't important. How it plays out becomes important. Uh, this is the last day on earth. There's a giant meteor coming in. Everybody knows it's coming in. Everybody's just kind of, coming to terms with with you know this being the last day of their life and uh she's decided for early on she decides that she doesn't want to doesn't want to do anything she just wants to get stoned and <laughs> just kind of lay there and watch the world end but uh, her younger self wants her to go to a party that her friend is throwing and uh she eventually does decide to go and but before that she's got this kind of bucket list journey of people she wants to see before she before it all ends, uh, including uh, interactions with her mother, played by Helen Hunt, and her uh, her dad, played by um, Bradley Whitford. Uh, and <laughs> there's these wonderfully weird, awkward, funny interactions that uh, really don't go anywhere you expect them to, and they're just really smartly written and played. But what really got me and what really makes me love this movie is the ending where these two characters who have never been in the movie before, she interacts with a bunch of different people you know, just along the way. Just Nick Kroll shows up and Fred Armisen and Paul Shear and Rob Hoyle. Uh, they all just kind of show up and they do a little comedy bit and they move on. But the last one she runs into is Charlie Day and an actress whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, and the waitress <laughs> from Missouri. She has a... <laughs> <laughs> she has a moment with them that turns out to be this really genuine moment that then spins her off into what remains of this story, which becomes very emotional. And I, I got really like emotionally invested in a movie that initially seems so distant and so like ironic and, and, and so far from being emotional that when it takes this turn at the end to be very emotional about the way she's interacting with her younger self, I was blown away just how good that was. That was such a great scene. It's so beautifully played. And that it comes from that interaction is is both funny and, and poignant and weird. And I just, it makes me love this movie that much more. 
Yeah, it's it's a neat movie. It's I think it was filmed during lockdown, so all the scenes are social distanced, more or less. <laughs> and knowing that does kind of take me out of the movie a little bit. Uh, and but other than that, it, it's neither here nor there. It's kind of neat, but at the same time, it's a gimmick. So you sit there and you can definitely see the gimmick. Uh, but it's it is a very sweet story, and, and because of all those interactions between the cast of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, along with Nick Kroll and Fred Armisen, Olivia Wilde has a great scene. Yeah, that uh, was a wonderful scene. <laughs> it, it's just it's it's an easy watch. Whitney Cummings too. <laughs> That's and there's nothing wrong with what Paulie Shore and Whitney Cummings do. Yeah. My only thing that bugged me is Whitney Cummings was like all over Instagram the entire pandemic doing parties and Thanksgiving stuff. And it was just like, come on, man. People are supposed to be separating and social distancing and not hanging out. And here you are shoving it in her face. Yeah. I yeah. love her. She's hilarious. I, I think she's right. great. But And then the whole Joe Rogan tie-in, it's just, I don't know. This She's starting to kind of, I'm judging her more than I should. It's my fault. Uh, so that was that kind of as funny as it was, I that and for I just I that's me. It's my fault. So just ignore me. This is a <laughs> sweet, good movie that I think people will enjoy. Anything else on how it ends? I hope people see it. Uh, give it a real chance. Yeah, there's enough people in here that whether it's Paul Shear, you're gonna like somebody in it. And they have a great scene, whoever it is, because they, they were yeah. off. I mean, Bradley Whitford's never been better. <laughs> He's so good in that scene. I mean, really, all. I mean, Fred Armisen's great. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing, every every little side thing is just is really, really funny. Helen um, Hunt, I mean, this is a very yeah. authentic interaction. It's very spiky, but it's very, you know, mother-daughter. It, it really does work. Yeah, and then the scene with her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably the worst scene of all of them, but it's still really funny. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a great, it's a good movie. It's very watchable, very fun. I mean, the posters is fresh and funny. That's the perfect way to describe this movie. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Broken Diamonds. Broken Diamonds stars uh, Ben Platt as a uh, wannabe writer who is uh, about to give up everything in his life. He's quit his job. He's selling his car. He's giving up his apartment to move to Paris to become a writer. Uh, But then his his father dies. And his father was the main caretaker for his sister, played by Lola Kirk, who who is... uh, she she's schizophrenic, I believe, is what what she is, and uh, she she's at a group. She's at a hospital. She lives at this hospital, and uh, she takes medications to keep herself in check. And she's trying to get back. She's trying to get out into the world, but she's also got a lot of problems. Uh, so with his father dying, he's kind of thrust into this situation where he's pretty much given up most of his life to move to Paris, and now this situation is happening where he's pretty much got to take care of his sister. On top of that, she gets herself kicked out of the hospital over an incident um, that was pretty much related to unresolved grief from finding out that her father died. Uh, That's going to leave her without a place to stay for two weeks. Meanwhile, he's leaving in a week. So there's a lot of complications building up there. And 
this is a very good movie. Uh, it's very well acted. It's it's got some moving parts that are really that can be very emotional. It doesn't quite stick in terms of being as emotional. Like say, as, I didn't have like the same emotional reaction that I had to how it ends. It's a very different movie, but I still connected to it that one on an emotional level more than I did with this movie. But uh, there's still a lot of really strong elements to it, and the, they, they do well to set up the story and set up his conflict. Uh, it, but it's also a very easy conflict that has a relatively simple uh, way of playing out. I'm not going to spoil it, but I don't think I can. It's not really something you could spoil. It's not a twist or anything like that. Um, it's 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 a solid, well-acted movie that has a, a strong heart to it, and it's, it's good. Awesome. Uh, and there's Settlers. Ugh, settlers. Yeah, Settler, Settler stars uh, the young girl from uh, the Florida Project and uh, Sophie, Sophia Botella from uh, one of the Star Trek movies. Um, they, along with Johnny Lee Miller, make up this family that is living on, we think it's Mars. They don't really tell us that it's Mars, but it appears to be like Mars. Um, they've arrived in this place and they've taken over this uh, farm, which is weird. There's a farm that's on this planet. Uh, which again we think is Mars. Uh, and it turns out this is this like fertile land, and they can grow stuff, and they're making a life. But they've found out that they've taken this land from somebody else, and those people, at least the the descendants of those people, have come back, and they want the land back. And uh, one of them is going to get inside this essentially this dome that they're in, and and try to take back the land. And that's kind of the action element, but that's early on in the movie because it's not an action movie. Because nothing happens in this movie. It's just years and years and years of nothing happening in this movie. Uh, the, the, again, this is another movie that's very meta. It's so got a meta narrative uh, because this is a movie about lockdown. It's about a family that's locked together in a house that they can't leave. They can go outside and they can do the things outside that they need to do in terms of growing their own food and tending to their uh, wildlife. But uh, they're locked into this bubble that they're inside. And, and that's essentially the story here is this girl growing up and essentially what is a lock, what is lockdown. Uh, and the, the metaphor is incredibly obvious and, and I hate when metaphors are so incredibly obvious. I'd like you to kind of build to that and surprise me. And there's no surprise here because really just, I get it. I get it. Lockdown's the same every day. Nothing happens during lockdown. I get it. I understand what you're going for. I don't want to watch a movie about that. <laughs> yeah. Nothing happens. Glad I skipped it then. Yeah. All right. I will see how long this lasts. <laughs> Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. This is the uh, first in a series called Music Box from HBO and producer uh, Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons is the guy who essentially gave uh, was part of ESPN creating 30 for 30. And this is now his kind of 30 for 30 for music. Uh, the first episode is on Woodstock 99, which was this gargantuan failure of planning. Um, so uh, 30, the 30th, the 30 year anniversary of Woodstock, the one of the original guys, Michael Lang, along with this guy, John Shear decided to put on uh, Woodstock 99 five years after they'd done the 25-year anniversary, which kind of went rel relatively well. <laughs> it kind of was reminiscent of 69. It was kind of 
peaceful. But the problem was, as they point out, they didn't make any money. And one of the things that they say very clearly this time is that this time we're going to make money. <laughs> and, and to do that, they had to sell out in every way imaginable to, you know, selling water for $4, selling a slice of pizza for $10. Like, all this just awful, these awful corporate tie-ins everywhere. Uh, and, and setting Woodstock at an Air Force base, which if you, I realize optics weren't a big thing, in 99 as they are now now we talk about optics <laughs> we talk about what something looks like when you do it they didn't think about that back then it's woodstock it's the peace festival you're putting it out of former air force base <laughs> on top of that it's just the worst location like it's large enough yes it's large enough for what their scope was but in terms of being like habitable <laughs> it's just it's an, it's not something that you can spend a lot of time on when it's really, really hot, really, really hot. And a lot of cement and a lot of people in the same place is a bad idea. And anybody who could plan something could probably tell you that this was a bad idea, why they didn't recognize that it was a bad idea. Nobody knows. On top of that, they made no plan whatsoever, apparently for the bathrooms, because those we're talking about a three day festival. They've got porta potties, but they've, they're just not useful at all. They just, they don't plan on people being people and just destroying this shit. <laughs> well, nor so, were they emptying them on a, a quick enough that, you know, they, they didn't have any of that. They had no, no. logistics plan for that. None whatsoever. They cut corners in every possible way. Specifically with security. Oh yeah. <laughs> they just hired fans, gave them the answers to a test. They got in, turned their shirts inside out, hid their lanyards and went to the show. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing these people confiscated at the door, they didn't confiscate drugs. They didn't confiscate drugs. They confiscated water and food. Yeah. <laughs> Which there was not nearly enough of, of course. So you have, you know, a person literally dying at this festival because of the dehydration and heat. Uh, there's one guy who almost dies from hypothermia tells his story in this movie. No um, guy who does. It's just, and then, then you really get to the heart of it and it's just so, it's just so often. I thought the movie kind of cut a corner on this particular aspect, which is all of the sexual assaults that occurred at this festival, which were innumerable. Uh, there were just, there were so many of them that, that you can hardly count. I like showing it on camera half the time. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. this motherfucker, John Cher, this absolute garbage person, has the audacity to say, well, you know, they're walking around naked. I mean, it's their own fault. Screw you. It's like, not to victim blame, but here I'm going to victim blame. <laughs> <laughs> he does say something that is true in it, and it he's wrong when he says it. But you, Woodstock 69 was a disaster, too. They made a movie. They re-edited it, made it look amazing. You could have done that here. In fact, the DVD I had when it came out looked like yeah. a great time. You can't tell me when corn hits the stage and the way that crowd moves that you don't get chills how cool that is. They're still normal at that point. <laughs> it hasn't gone off the rails yet. 
but the way the crowd re- interacts with the way the corn goes up and down and the wave through the front to back, that's really, really neat and really, really cool. You could have edited this and make it look like a huge success because they never stopped it. You know, it just kept going. Uh, and that's, and I, I'm not saying that this he's right and they should do that, but you could have done that and made it actually look good. 69 was a shit show too. Michael Lang's an idiot. He doesn't know how to throw shit. He's not a good promoter. Woodstock 50 fell apart because he didn't get permits and he didn't do yeah. his job. He doesn't know how to, he's not a real promoter. And that's what the problem was. And this documentary pisses me off so much because they spend time trying to act like the acts on the show, not just what they did on stage, but what they stood for is why the kids are like that. They're, they're, they're taking, they're bringing like assholes like Moby on, who's probably the biggest creep of every artist on that stage. Say what you want about Fred Durst. Moby has actual shit he's done wrong. That's, you know, look up Natalie Portman and Moby and tell me he's not a creep. Then you got Scott Stapp from Creed, another guy who's got a lot of problems, who's another one of your voices trying to tell people apart or tear, you know, this new metal, you know, thing apart. New metal is not homophobic. It's not misogynist. It's just it. it they were trying to work that angle and it, and it wasn't true. Kid Rock might be a little bit, but that's they spent very little time on Kid Rock. Then you go to the artists on stage and. They're not there. They're walking up on stage and they're walking off. They're, they're, there's no context there. Yeah, the show guy talking to Anthony Kiedis and Fred Durst. You don't know what they're saying. You don't know what's going on. I've seen almost all these bands live, a lot of them at least, and I've seen girls go up on a guy's shoulders and a guy grab the girl, and I've seen the, every single artist on the stage stop the show when that happens. They, and you show Offspring doing it here, and I'm sure it happened more. Uh, but you can't see when you're on a stage that big, as far as away as the people are. You can't see stuff. You don't know everything that's going on. And so that to sit there and say, because Limp Biscuit has a song called Break Stuff, and they ended up breaking stuff three days later or two days later that Limp Biscuit caused the whole thing to go. It's it's just lazy and stupid. And even when Red Hot Chili Peppers playing Fire at the end, that was all planned ahead of time because they were going to do a Jimi Hendrix thing afterwards. I mean, it's all the way you put it together to sit and put blame. The blame should lie on two people, and that's the two promoters. You, This could have been – this has been done. You know, I, whether it's – there was 220,000 people here. I, I was at a show two years ago with 100 and some odd thousand people. It, you, you can – you, when you have that many people, it doesn't matter if it's 100 or 200,000. It's a ton of people in a short space. These stages were a mile and a half apart. You have three female performers the entire weekend playing at 5.30 right before, I think one night it was before Lent Biscuit, another night it was before like Bush. I mean, there, it was, you had all the hard rock acts at the end of the night and you just, you know, have a stage for Alanis Morissette and Jewel and Cheryl Crow. Mix it up more. Do it there's ways to do this and not be stupid. Uh, and it's not a big deal to have Limp Biscuit, Rage Against Machine, Metallica play back to back. That's been done. It, 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 this didn't have to happen. You have no security. Uh, they're literally sleeping in shit. Uh, it, it's, it, it is just, it is so infuriating that, I mean, it, Michael Lang is one of the biggest idiots that ever lived <laughs> in this world. <laughs> and, and just the way, you know, 
I wish they would go back and take over, you know, look at Woodstock 69. The army had to be brought in. I mean, more people died in that one. There were rapes in that one, too. And all you hear about is how good Jimi Hendrix was, and you know, because that's the way that it was presented at the time. And it's that part really bugged me about this because they tried they they didn't just blame them; they went and blamed a lot of different things. And then for whatever reason, they bring up a a very quick Napster part of the story, which had no rel. I mean, other than greed, but. You know, you ask any artist, with the exception of Dave Mustaine, who was kicked out of Metallica, <laughs> what they think of Napster, and they're going to side with Metallica. But they get the guy kicked out of Metallica to shit on Metallica regarding Napster. It's just, to me, I thought it was really poorly done. Uh, the And even the nudity and the sexual assaults is almost like they they showed a lot of it and to the point where I couldn't tell if they were trying to prove a point or hey we got naked girls in this movie you know I, I there was they could have censored stuff they didn't have I mean it was just I don't know I, I did not like this movie I, I understand uh, it, it pisses me off at the poor like they didn't have an, a true intent uh, and like you said they didn't I, I like the sexual assault was assaults were bad. Uh, there were some things that I thought were really well done. Uh, in that, when DMX hits the stage, he's got this song where he's doing the callback, and in the callback, uh, yeah, a crowd of you know a hundred thousand white people are yelling back my N word, and yeah, but DMX is he's doing it in a way that it's like he's giving them permission to do it. Well, what is weird is. And they have a journalist who goes, if you asked every single one of those people individually, they would never admit to doing something like that. And like if you like if you did a if you did a poll and you asked people like you're standing in front of somebody, yes. you asked them if it was a they would say, Of course not. No, you never say that. Absolutely. And here they all are yelling it back at DMX. Right. They think it's okay. And they get one of the rioters on there too at the end. Like I would never thought he'd get wrapped up in it. There's something about mob mentality. And that's why you have to take precautions with these big festivals because things can go out awry. You need boundaries. You need to break up the stages. One, having stages a mile and a half apart on top of asphalt on 100 degrees for three days. Terrible idea. Forget the shit everywhere. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No water, no reasonable water, you know, without waiting for hours to even get a sip of something. People, you know... Showering not in the for, water source. Not even accounting for basic human nature. Not that human nature is necessarily always bad, but that there are going to be selfish people who are going to act selfishly, and you don't have anybody there to stop them uh, from acting selfishly, like the girls who climb into the only water supply to take a bath. Like, right. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> that, 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 not accounting for that. I mean, why, why were people allowed to just walk around naked? I mean, why was that something that everybody just arrived there and thought was okay? I, I Not that I'm saying that it's bad to be naked. I'm not saying that. I'm not a prude. But I'm saying that, in general, if I walk outside tomorrow naked, I'm going to get arrested. <laughs> That's going to happen. I can't walk down my street just being naked. They're going to arrest me. <laughs> right. And yet, somehow, these people had license to just arrive at Woodstock 99 and just be naked and have nobody do anything about it. No, you know, 
there's not a sign somewhere that just says no shirt, no shoes, no service. Come on. I mean, I, I re- you, you're claiming this is Woodstock, yet you're holding it on an Air Force base. Like, you guys don't care about this. Even the creation, even the myth you created about Woodstock, you don't actually care about it. Right. And and that's the other thing. It's like, like the show, I, I'm going to a festival in September. Again, there'll be 120,000 people there. Corn's there, Metallic. All these bands that are on here, a lot of them are going to be there. Now, granted, they're older, and it's it's been years, so it's a different crowd. But And they'll be, maybe not naked people, but partially naked people, and they're probably not going to get raped because it's, uh, it's ran by a much better promoter who has the proper security and knows how to do stuff. And I... I just, it's like they were trying to blame people for not even just the, that one promoter about the nudity and the people walking around topless or naked. It was, you know, they were trying to blame girls gone wild and don't get me wrong. Like that guy's an idiot who put that together. And that was part of the culture at the time. And, uh, everything is cyclical. You know, they kept going, well, if Nirvana were here, it would be different. Fuck that. That's not true. It, you know, right now we're at a very, our culture is very, you know, they keep, it's woke and people are upset. There's going to be a band or something that comes out and it's going to change again for, you know, to be more over the top and more party. It's going to come back. It does that every, everything's cyclical. So it, it's not that Kurt Cobain died. So now Kid Rock came out and ruined everything. It's not how it was. And it's, I don't know, even putting that in this documentary wasn't relevant and it, kind of annoyed me and it I, I just I don't know it, that was where they took liberties with the editing to make things look worse than it was and don't get me wrong I don't like Kid Rock I don't like Fred Durst but to sit here and put all this especially on Fred Durst is bullshit and stupid no it, the, the the blame lies clearly with John Cher and, and Michael Lang they're they're the villains of here this they Absolutely. they did this uh, and granted, you, the people obviously who were rioting are at fault, but they created a situation that allowed them to be that way. They created a situation that was unsafe by just their poor planning. You got to protect people from themselves because like, like we were just saying with the DMX part, all those people would probably say what they were doing wasn't right beforehand and they just got caught up in the moment and went with it. Same with the rioters. I, they, and I don't know. It, it's really frustrating and at the same time, you know, it's important to know that you shouldn't treat women like people were treating them here. That there's no excuse for, you know, all those people should. I know that what are they what are there eight that were reported, but clearly you could see hundreds of them happening in this documentary alone. Girls right. on someone's shoulders, and you're touching her. You're sexually assaulting her. It's true. So it's true. Because a woman is naked, you don't have the right to put your hands on her. Sorry, you just don't. That you you don't have consent to do that. I mean, they show just because them, she's naked. They show them girls who aren't naked crowd surfing them, ripping her clothes off. There's a story in here from a guy who is a first responder for multiple hurricanes who yes. said this was worse than the hurricanes he'd worked. But he tells this story about uh, seeing an ambulance pull up at the at the tent, and uh, ambulance driver gets out not wearing a shirt, and he's kind of confused, and he says, "Don't let anybody touch her. Just keep an eye." Keep an eye on her. Don't let anybody. And inside is a girl. The reason the guy doesn't have a shirt on is because he had to give it to this 15-year-old girl who would, they just ripped her clothes off. They'd torn her apart in the crowd. And she had to be rescued from the crowd and taken out and taken to the the tent and treated. And 
Good yeah. God. Like, you fucking monsters. Like, I don't care what music you're listening to. It's not the music. It's you. It's yeah. you. You're the monster. <laughs> yeah. And, and Michael Cher and or, and John Cher and Michael Lang for, for setting up a, a situation where, where this became possible. This is on them. That's, yeah. That blood is on your hands. Absolutely. And I'm not saying all of us have it in us to do that, but all of us have somewhere we'd go that's not ourselves you know i would never go i don't i can't i would i've definitely been in a scenario where i could have touched something i never would uh and i can't imagine being a rioter that's just not my but you know when you're in a mob mentality you're gonna go outside your normal morals everybody's gonna have a different limit but you know you just i don't know this you can watch it i guess it's it's something and it, it, these guys deserve they look come off like assholes and i'm glad about that right uh, i i don't think we need to live in a in a police state where everything has to be like constant observation from police but there there is a balance that you can create where where you just create an atmosphere that that uh, it happens like you said at at dozens of shows every year Coachella <laughs> that are sizable shows event. Coachella's corporate and it yeah. it works just fine every year and they're able but it, it's not because they put they've turned it into a police state where where they have a policeman in every row of the thing. No. it's that they've created an atmosphere where people understand what's acceptable and what's not and these on guys- top of which you've got this this absolute disgusting horrible greed that is driving every decision that John Share and Michael Lang are making, you know, because this time we're going to make money. You know, Woodstock 94 was successful, but we did, we lost money. So this time uh, we're going to make money this time. I say they said that. Yep. And they cut every corner to make that money. They did not spare any expense or, or they spared every expense, I guess is the right phrase, because they didn't have security or anything. They had no boundary. It was just a... A shit show literally yeah. and yeah. and it's again you can watch this i'm not gonna be mad at you if you do because <laughs> they do need to be vilified i'd love to see them tear apart 69 and really show up for what that was just to really show you what kind of a piece of trash michael lang really is uh but if you want to watch something great watch the paul mccartney rick rubin series on who that's freaking phenomenal uh, I saw the first episode. It was pretty amazing. Oh, I, I love every second of it. All right, we, it's just uh, it's just Paul McCartney. It's 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 Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney talking about just little tiny elements of Beatles songs that stand out, you know, just from Paul's memory. And then he plays a little bit of them, and and then Rick Rubin, you know, they're just messing with the with the board. To hi- let's highlight this, and then we're gonna look at this. And where did this come from? So fascinating. It, Wow, <laughs> and it it only it it doesn't it's not repetitive either. Every episode no. is a little bit different, and it, to the point where Josh, who hates the Beatles, I, I like I want him to be like I'd love him to give this a shot and watch it because I if nothing else it'll give him a better appreciation for it because it is like I've always loved them, appreciated what they did, but they're they were way way better than i even gave him credit for you know you can't be that popular the beatles without being overrated but they actually are they're not overrated they're that good and i just absolutely loved that series on hulu uh all right let's get to the meat of the podcast (laughs) we're an hour in we're finally getting to nicholas cage (laughs) hp lovecraft's color out of space Color Out of Space stars uh, Nicolas Cage as the uh, the father figure in a family of 
uh, four or is it five, five people, uh, three kids, two parents. They live in the country. Uh, one night, this meteor slams into the ground outside of their house and gets into the groundwater and bad things start to happen. Uh, this has got a lot of, you know, like there's, you want body horror. Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a scene of body horror in this movie that turned my stomach (laughs) in the best possible way. Um, cage here is, you know, he's at times he's crazy cage, but it's, it's a measured sort of crazy cage because he knows when to deploy the crazy. Like he's, he's, he, he said, he seems to, I love what he does with his voice in this movie. It is such a clever thing to be. It's almost meta to where he recognizes that I'm being really normal here. I'm very normcore, bad Nicholas Cage. But then when things are starting to get crazy, suddenly he starts to turn and the, and you suddenly hear him like, he's almost like having like a dementia moment where he seems to forget who he's talking to kind of. And he starts talking in this very stilted accent that's very odd almost tarantino-esque like he almost <laughs> sounds like quentin tarantino doing an interview <laughs> <laughs> there's an element of that yes <laughs> but it, it's it's so calculated but it's perfectly right. calibrated to the moment because it's about this escalating sort of insanity that's going to rise and fall throughout as this story gets crazier and crazier and and more things begin to happen uh, I, I don't think it's nearly as good as as either Willie's Wonderland or or Pig, but it, oh, it's no. it, in its way though it, it's very successful in in being like a a, a Lovecraft movie in a you know a horror film, uh, and it just makes me appreciate him more. I agree, the movie itself is not as good, but he he's something else in this, and you know we. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he gets, needs to. I kind of mentioned it last week. Al Pacino is kind of the one I'm starting to look at when I look at Cage because Pacino's doing it in bad movies, trying to make them good. And here, Cage is like, it looks like he's purposely taking small movies and trying to give them a little something to them. And so far, it's working for me. I'm kind of enjoying everything I see that he's done lately. Uh, now there's a lot. So in there, uh, I could be completely wrong, but <laughs> his it's from what I'm actually watching and the results I'm getting, I, I'm starting to turn a corner. I mean, I shouldn't say starting to, I've turned the corner and I now it's just about sending me back. But I, I mean, I just love the choices he makes. They make sense. They're, they're original and they're, it, it just it gives you something new as a movie viewer to watch and someone who's you know i mean he's an a-list actor not and not acting like an a-lister for several years now so i i'm just pretty impressed with that uh but yeah you're right this isn't this isn't mandy it's not pig uh it's not even <laughs> it's closer to willie's wonderland i guess uh you know I, so many movie stars, you can point to areas where they're where they're just bizarre egotists. And while there are elements of him that certainly are are arrogant, maybe, but I wouldn't call him egotistical. Certainly not now. I think he seems to almost have abandoned ego in a way to to just lend. Now he's lending himself to people to be 
to be used. And then, you know, bring then when they use him, he brings something extra to it. Like Willie's Wonderland is not Willie's Wonderland without Nicolas Cage. And he doesn't say a word because uh, he's bringing some other type of energy there as an actor. And while you can sense that Willie's Wonderland was going for something, he gives it something else that it wouldn't have had without him. Right. And it makes it kind of special. And uh, the same thing I think goes here. Any other actor I don't think could get the kind of performance that Cage is giving here. It is a it is a performance where he is he understands the material and then he decides, okay, I know a way that I can elevate this to something else and make it even more by using this particular you know, thing. I'm gonna make a choice here that's that's a little bit different than maybe other actors wouldn't make. Yeah. I yeah, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, other actors can, when they do when they do that, they, like Travolta tries to do that too. He tries that and it fails miserably when he does it because it seems like an obvious choice. It seems like something that he's doing specifically. Uh, like he does and when he does an accent, it seems like oh, John Travolta is doing an accent. When Nicolas Cage does it here, it feels like I I know that what this moment means. I'm going to try this and, and it works. I feel like Nicolas Cage is way more aware than when you give him credit. And Travolta is not aware at all. Like when he did that Fred Durst movie, we just like I tried to defend it as much as I could. But the fact of the matter is, he should know he's going into a Fred Durst movie, and the first line is something about pooping. You know, come on, you should know better. You even if yeah. it made sense, if you know Brian De Palma and somebody else did it, if it would work, it doesn't make a difference. Fred Durst is directing this, and your first line is something to do with poop. You need to know better, and Travolta yeah. does not seem to have that. A filter. Uh, Cage seems like a collaborator now. He seems like he, you know he he's not. Whereas like um, Con Air, he he was sort of doing his own thing, and early in his career, he could make a choice that where it's like I'm going to do this whether you want me to or not. <laughs> now he seems to be in a mode where, uh, like I said, he's almost post ego, where he's like, "What do you need from me? All right, well, I I think I can do that for you, but I'm also going to give you this, and we're going to work together and create something." And I I got that sense as well from his. Uh, Vanity Fair interview recently where he's talking about the tools that he uses in a movie and he has various different tools and he doesn't feel like he gets credit for the various different tools that he has and it didn't come off as egotistical egotistical it came off like I'm just responding to the way that you guys see me and I'm I'm trying to tell you to look at me in a different way well and you hear these like stories about Bruce Willis and how he just goes no we're we're done we're not taking any more takes we got it (laughs) And the director's like, well, no, well, I'm the director. No, we're good. We're not. I'm, I'm not doing it again. Yeah, I mean, you can do it without me. <laughs> this is more of the, like you said, like with Willie's Wonderland, it was clearly he brought stuff, and maybe we brought. We thought he brought way more than maybe he did, but the shirt idea, the soda, all the things that we thought he was, he brought himself. Whether he did or didn't, I could see him doing that and not a egotistical way like in a way to better to elevate the film and i think he does it here too uh i think yeah he, he's not insisting upon it the way like peggy shoes got married he almost tanked that movie because he insisted upon doing something whereas i think in willie's wonderland he may have said i want to do this and i think it's a good choice i think he's more it seems to me like he seems to be working with people that said I do want to go back because I hated Snake Eyes, our classic this week when I first saw it. Yeah. Uh, and I had a different appreciation for it this time. Uh, Me too. Good. I was a little worried that this was one of those ego movies, but I thought he 
elevated this movie too. <laughs> Snake Eyes is a 1998 film uh, starring Nicolas Cage and directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, it tells the story of a conspiracy to kill the, uh, the Secretary of Defense. And it's a, it's a, a mystery story and it's a, also a hero cop story, but he's not a hero. And some of that I feel like Nicolas Cage is so perfect for the way he like, like I think that ending, I think feels like something he insisted upon where I don't get to walk away. I, I don't get to get away with what I've done. Like I got that feeling like, because that felt a little bit tacked on like other movies would have ended where, you know, but I thought that I, I liked that choice, but also I could see him and De Palma working together on that. Uh, but I, he is so big and showy and over the top in this movie, but it's, it's in service of the character. He's never, he's never just going over the top just to do it. It's not, it's not overly performative. That's who this character is. That's who Richard Santoro is, is this big broad person he's a loud obnoxious guy wearing this awful ugly shirt who's just excited to be wherever he is and happy to be as corrupt as possible and get what he can out of the world and and he meets this moral challenge where he he, he's suddenly placed in a situation where somebody that he trusted has done something horrible and he has to he can continue to easily, very easily continue to be corrupt and let it all happen. And he has to make a moral choice and he makes a very important moral choice. And he, I bought into him. I just did. I just bought into what he's selling. And maybe it's just, you know, recency bias of just coming to love so much of his work. But I, I liked the choices that he made here. I liked that uh, he, you know, he doesn't necessarily. You know, it's not that he falls in love with Carlo Gugino immediately. He's just he, he's he seems like he'd be perfectly willing to sell her down the river, right? You know, possibly, but then he does sort of reach this when he when he sees the the absence of morality within this person that he you know was like his other half. Like I don't have to be moral. Kevin's immoral. Kevin's moral. I don't have to be. You know, he's the good force in the universe. I can just be me. And then we sees his friend absence absent of that morality it it kind of reflects on him like he's looking in a mirror suddenly and he realizes that i can't i can't be the bad guy i, I somebody has to do the right thing here and i guess it's going to have to be me and i love the way that cage played that i love the way that scene plays and i i'm not a big fan of gary sinise but i thought at least sinise was functional enough to give cage the room to right. do what he's doing and even the like if he doesn't meet Carla Gugino face to face, he might sell her out and let her die. But he's put a face. I mean, he doesn't fall in love with her. He, he just right. there's a connection. He sees her face, and now he knows she's gonna die if he doesn't do the right thing. And it, I just the way he did, you know, mix that in there as well. I was I hated this movie when it came out. Uh, just hated it. Yeah, and I just. I, Part of me just wants to go back and as I watch things, it's been a while since I've seen Con Air or The Rock or I don't think I've ever seen Peggy Sue got married uh, and just wondered, you know, I'm not watching it right, maybe. Uh, and this one was definitely one I wasn't watching right because he annoyed me then. But it, you're right. It's in service of the character and it elevates the story and it makes kind of a lazy, lame, pretty straightforward movie. Uh, it gives it a little, gives it some teeth and makes it, something it's not and i appreciate that for it uh i 
I mean, it's he's great at chewing scenery, but in a way that services the movie. You know, Jack Nicholson's great at it too. Uh, Al Pacino can be, but sometimes he's really, really bad. But those are like, it's like. I don't know. You have the guy who does it wrong in Pacino. You got the guy who's just kind of perfect in Cage. And the guy can do it on any level with Nicholas Nicholson. I mean, I think that's where he belongs in discussion more so than like the Travolta or, you know, whoever else. I think he's that great of an actor. I just think he loves acting and he loves the process and he loves being creative with it. I don't know. I, I really, this has been a lot of fun kind of rediscovering Nicholas Cage recently. Yeah, I also love I love De Palma's direction. That's there's a scene in this movie where uh, Sinise is on an elevator with Gugino and this other guy, and Cage is trying to get to her. He doesn't know that that Sinise's character is there, so he's not aware of the urgency even of this of this situation because Sinise is trying to kill her, and he doesn't know that. And the way that this is staged, the like you can see Sinise makes a very deliberate decision to not get off the elevator where she is. He doesn't want to give himself away in that way, but she knows him. And she knows what's going on. Uh, and, but the, the, the music is propellant and exciting. The direction, the choices that he's making with where making sure that we know where everybody is and why they're where they are all makes sense. That is a tremendous piece of suspense. Right. Not to mention that awesome shot at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all I ever thought of this movie was just yeah. that, and then I was done. Uh, so glad to rediscover this one. Uh, I don't think you watched anything from '91, did you? I didn't. We had the Doctor. <laughs> no. Uh, Probably should have, but uh, another year. Kingdom no. Wilder, no. Richard Pryor, Life Stinks, Mel Brooks. No. Mobsters. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've seen them all. I've seen all these, but like thirty years ago. this movie was a big deal you know this was like uh, the first time that a that a woman got to play this character uh that was a lot of the marketing around this was the idea that kathleen turner gets to play a detective character that's like the kind of detective character that men get to play all the time and uh and she got to play it kind of in a in a way that that brought femininity to the kind of you know flatfoot detective stories that we'd seen since the 1950s and that it's not not nearly as good as one of those is more of a testament i think to to i think trying too much to underline the point <laughs> you're right. trying to just you're like they still directed it like they have a man in the lead <laughs> and, and they don't really do enough to to separate her character and make her any better or different other than she has a vagina <laughs> and killer legs and killer eyes. <laughs> yeah, but, but that, I mean, it, at least it, his, it has a notable history, I guess. Well, nothing <laughs> wrong with trying. You got to start somewhere. Uh, that is our show. Next week we got a twenty-four is the Green Knight, Jungle Cruise starring The Rock, and Stillwater starring Matt Damon. Uh, Ninety-one. Some throwaway movies, Hot Shots. No need to watch that again, even if I might. Doc Hollywood, Body Parts, Rover, Dangerfield, Return to the Blue Lagoon. Uh, We don't have a classic idea yet, but we will let you know when we do. Uh, And I'm sure Netflix and HBO and Amazon, all that movies as well. We'll see what we end up watching. Yeah. Uh, 
We'll do it quick because they are running a little long, but let's play a little bit of flick chart. That works for you. Sure. Slither death proof. Death proof. Agreed. The Hunt for Red October made in Manhattan. Hunt for Red October. King Arthur Legend of the Sword Rocky 2. Rocky 2. Yes. Oh, speaking, there was a there was a problem I did have with Snake Eyes uh, since we met, you know since Rocky came up there Rocky even Rocky Two is a very good boxing movie even if the boxing isn't necessarily realistic it's a much better boxing movie than Snake Eyes the boxing in Snake Eyes I realize it's supposed to be stilted but it's so bad <laughs> like neither of them look like they could box at all well on top of that <laughs> the one guy's throwing the fight and right you would think it wouldn't just be Nicolas Cage that was like. <laughs> Now, granted, the gunshot goes off too, yeah. so there's they get away with it. But you're right, yeah, uh, it's bad. It was bad. <laughs> the village dude wears my car. The village, the dude oh. wears my car is just too stupid. I thought for sure you're gonna go, dude wears my car. <laughs> uh, Batman Forever, Small Soldiers. Batman Forever. Not a fan of Batman Forever, really, but Small Soldiers is bad. Ready Player One, A Man for All Seasons. A Man for All Seasons. I haven't seen it, so I'll go with you. Zootopia, Shaun of the Dead. I like Zootopia. I've never liked Shaun of the Dead. I, yeah, I, I want to like Shaun of the Dead, and I try. It's like Big Trouble Little China. I try and try and try, and every time I watch it, I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> if, you guys, if you guys didn't like this movie so much, I might like it a little better. Uh, Species, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. Yeah. American Sniper, Casablanca. Casablanca. Yeah. Dogma, the Adjustment Bureau. Dogma. City of God, Robin Hood, Russell Crowe. City of God. (laughs) (laughs) The Rocketeer, Scary Movie 2. They're both bad. But The Rocketeer has a young Jennifer Connelly, so. Yeah, neither are worth caring about. Uh,. Dagon Get Smart. I think I've seen Dagon, but I don't remember. It's an HP Lovecraft movie. Yeah. Get on the bus, get smart. Get on the bus. Yeah. The incredible Burt Wonderstone, District Nine. Uh, I feel District, like District Nine. Nine always gets these these <laughs> uh, uh favorable movies. matchups. Right. <laughs> the wedding singer Bolt. The story behind Bolt is actually better than the Wedding Singer, but the movie is Wedding Singer wins. But like Bolt was like a totally different movie when then they reshot and redid the whole thing. <laughs> like they they literally made an entire movie and they didn't. And they're like, this isn't very good. Let's try again. And they made a worse movie. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the most popular westerns of all time: Unforgiven, The Searchers. That is tough, man. I'm gonna go Unforgiven, but. Yeah, that is that is a Sophie's choice. Yeah, I'm gonna let my child, known as the Searchers, die. Uh, the Hunger Games, History of the World, Hunger Games, History of the World's funny though. The Craft, Grown Ups, The Craft, Agreed. Logan, Spider Man Three, Logan, Yeah, Changing Lanes, Christine. Changing Lanes. It's actually a really good movie. I agree, and Christine's not 
Uh, great. Yeah. Oh, yes. Interstellar rope. Rope. <laughs> Love when that wins. <laughs> I don't hate Interstellar the way you do, but yeah, Rope is a better movie. Yeah, for but me. even you agreed the story sucked balls, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that episode. <laughs> uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Golden Compass. Two movies I don't give a shit about. Yeah, I don't really care. Golden Compass, maybe, I guess. Sure. Or, yeah. Ultraviolet. Straight out of Compton. Straight out of Compton. Yeah. Taxi Driver Aliens. Taxi Driver. I love when that happens too. Aliens are like <laughs> the unfavorable matchups. <laughs> and Josh isn't here to appreciate it. <laughs> Claudia with the chance of meatballs. Chinatown. Chinatown. <laughs> the living. What the fuck? The living daylights or Mr. Nanny? Oh, God, I have to pick a James Bond movie. What? Oh, they both. Fishing with Gandhi. There we go. Let's end the show on that one. <laughs> All right. James Bond people must hate me so much. Well, and I can't be the voice of reason because I don't like James Bond either. <laughs> I, I, that way with Shaun of the Dead, the Edgar, Edgar Wright movies, uh, even Super Trooper. There's so many movies where we just kind of, I want to be the voice of reasoning, or uh, not the voice of reason, but speak the, on behalf of the many, yeah, many fans. The other, yeah, who would, might even listen to a movie podcast, but I just, yeah. I don't have the appreciation. All right. I'll talk to you later. Cool. Bye.